Welcome to this podcast from Rolling Roads Baptist Church of Greensboro, North Carolina. You're invited to join with us as we are growing towards Christ. The following is a message from a recent Sunday morning worship service. This week's Bible study podcast, once again, is in the series, How to Discern the Voice of God. And this is part four, which is has the question... Does it align with God's character? So if we think we're hearing the voice of God, we need to ask, does it align with God's character? Because God never calls us to do something that is outside his character. You could say inconsistent with his character. And there's a picture at the beginning of a person on a Vespa-type scooter. looks like a really nice antique there, but and it's pink. So, you know, and the guy's got, I think it's a man, and he's got a biker jacket on. But anyway, they asked that question, what's something that would be totally out of character for you to do? And so we think about God maybe that same way. What would be totally out of character for him to do? Well, a lot of people don't have any idea who God is, how he's revealed himself in Scripture, so they have no idea how to evaluate it. But here we can learn our focal passage is Exodus 34, Verses 1 through 9, and Richard Blackaby writes, I believe God speaks to people. However, I have challenged numerous people over the years when they declared that God had told them to do something, but I knew it wasn't right. How would you respond if your friend claimed that God told him he did not have to forgive someone who had offended him? What would you say if a colleague asserted that God told her it was okay to abort her unborn baby? And you'll remember from one of the lessons before, he spoke to some man that he and his mistress had decided that God told them it was okay uh, for them to be released from their marriage vows. So, you know, he says here, God is holy and unloving. As a result, here's the point. God will never say or do anything that is unholy or unloving. And of course, we as his people would not be called to do such a thing either. When people say God told him to do something that's contrary to his nature, we can be confident that they have not heard from God. He always speaks in ways that are consistent with his character. He makes no exceptions. God never speaks out of character. So in Exodus 34, God speaks very clearly and plainly about his faithfulness and his unchanging character. And if we will read these verses and take them seriously, if we'll take the Bible seriously, we'll gain confidence to trust in what he says, to trust in God. This is an amazing passage. So I'm going to go ahead and charge forward here, Exodus 34, verses 1 through 5. I'm on page 134 of Bible Studies for Life, if you're following along with me. And again, I should have said this is for the week of February 12th. The Lord said to Moses, cut two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be prepared by morning. Come up to Mount Sinai in the morning and stand before me on the mountain top. 
No one may go up with you. In fact, no one should be anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and herds are not to graze in front of that mountain. Moses cut two stone tablets like the first ones. He got up early in the morning, and taking the two stone tablets in his hand, he climbed Mount Sinai, just as the Lord had commanded him. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. Blackaby writes, this is one of the most encouraging and inspiring passages in the Old Testament. You would have to agree with that. Remember the backdrop. The Israelites had broken the new covenant after he had delivered them from slavery out of Egypt. When Moses was up on the mountain, receiving God's commands after much consternation, there was a delay and the people began to make sport and to play and eat and have a big party. And remember, they melted down their gold and made a calf which they could worship, a golden calf. Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6. Of course, when Moses comes down, he blows his top and flings down the tablets to the ground and wham, they are broken. And so the covenant is broken before it is even established, as it were. And so then Moses unleashed the Levites who killed 3,000 Israelites as punishment for their sins. Fearsome times. God told Moses that he would send an angel with them into Canaan, but he himself would not go. Exodus 33, verses 2 through 3. Why? Because God said that should he accompany the sinful people for even a single moment, they would be destroyed. A just and holy, perfect God cannot dwell in the presence of a sinful people. Moses understood, however, that if God did not go with them, the people had no future. Verse 15, their only hope was God. Their only hope was that the holy God, the creator, would forgive their sins and renew his covenant with them. That is why Exodus 34 is so encouraging because in these passages you see that God condescended to re-enter a covenant with his wayward people. He condescended back to them to re-enter a covenant. And, and God had provided the tablets the first time, but this time Moses had to do it you know, had to put some skin in the game, so to speak, because Moses had broken them. So God tells him to come back up the mountain. This always reminds me of Alka-Seltzer plus cold medicine for some reason, probably because someone I know was very, very sick when they had to climb Mount Sinai early in the morning many decades ago. But anyway, I digress. God talks about how the ground is holy and God descends on the mountain. You know, people used to believe the mythology that, oh, up on the mountain is where God lives. But God doesn't live on the mountain. He descended back down to the mountain and he put a limit on the uh, people and the animals around to keep them all away. And, and God... 
told Moses he could not see him and live, Exodus 33, 20. So there was a limit to how much Moses could experience the Almighty God. And, and look at what God does first. God reveals his name. His name is a revelation of his character. It's the sacred covenant name that you and I might pronounce as Yahweh, which might mean loosely, I am who I am, or I am that I am. So this is the holiest, most revered name of God used by his people. It signifies God's eternal presence, his eternal existence. And so he's inviting Moses into a relationship with him by declaring his name so that Moses could know him more. What an amazing, awesome invitation. And at the bottom of page 135, he writes, the only way for people to know God is for him to reveal himself to them. So how do we navigate the difficulty, the tension, the relationship between intimacy and reverence in our relationship with God? Maybe it's like a seesaw. Sometimes we feel close and sometimes we feel far away. And sometimes we need to speak and sometimes we need to listen. You know, we need to be mediated in our relationship with God through the Holy Spirit, through the Word, and through Jesus. Anyway, our main point again is God never calls us to do something that is outside of his character. So look at these next verses. Unbelievably amazing verses. The proclamation of God in Exodus 34, beginning of verse 6. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed. The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Well, many of us like verse 6, but maybe verse 7 not so much. But you know, there's a mystery to who God is, according to the ancient Hebrews of that day. They seemed to keep God at arm's length, and they wanted Moses to deal with God for them. You remember how they talked about God as if they didn't have a clue who he was. But he appeared to be a powerful, righteous God. And after the Israelites worshipped a golden calf, Moses might have expected God to disclose his character as a holy God who judges and punishes sinners. But look what God reveals first. First, he does not emphasize his power, purity, or his wrath. But first, he disclosed these characteristics. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and abounding in the truth, and forgiving and just. Wow. That is an amazing description. So next time some fool says, well, you don't know who God is. You don't know anything about God. Uh, we don't know anything about God. You say, well... We know what this says, so deal with that. 
What is compassionate? A perfect God had concern for his frail and sinful creation. That's compassion. He didn't just wipe all the people out and start over. He's compassionate towards his people, even in their foolhardy rebellion, Blackaby says. And how about gracious? God's grace. <laughs> That's when God gives people what they don't deserve. God doesn't owe us anything, although people certainly think so and act that, that he does. He is immensely generous to us, and some people take that to mean God is a pushover or a mark, or he has to take me to heaven no matter what I do, because God must forgive everyone. Well, that's some pretty bad theology right there. Bad lip reading. So God is compassionate and gracious. And how about slow to anger? We know what that means. You would think that those who rebelled against God with the golden calf would have been, quote, unquote, quickly consumed, unquote. People talk about, oh, the Old Testament is so bad. Well, ain't as bad as it could have been, is it? God is long-suffering and only becomes angry when his righteousness has been <clears throat> grievously provoked. That's when he becomes angry. And then he's abounding in faithful love. There's that word that we keep talking about. Every few weeks, chesed comes up, the covenant love word. I can still remember my professors pronouncing that word, describing the faithful, loyal love, the covenant love that God demonstrates towards those with whom he is in a covenant relationship. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 9. I'll tell you this, Blackaby writes this at the bottom of page 136. When God commits himself to someone, he is faithful to keep every promise. But you know, the Israelites, man, they broke their promise, didn't they? They busted up good housekeeping before it had even started. And it's a default on a promise, but God doesn't default on the contract. He doesn't default on the covenant. He maintains his faithful love and it continues it to a thousand generations, it says. And we complain in verse 7 about the third and fourth generation. But look how patient God is. A thousand generations is probably a long time. And then abounding in truth. You know how the world is. The world wants us to, as Blackaby says, be immersed in lies, otherwise known as advertising and <laughs> government propaganda. Oh, my goodness. Watch out for that UFO balloon. But God is the one that always speaks the truth. He doesn't stand at a podium and blabber on about how serious he takes everything that he's not taking seriously. The world wants us to be confused in lies, but God speaks the truth. And not only does God tell the truth, not only did Jesus say he told the truth, Jesus said in John 14, 6, he is the truth. So the contrast between God's character and the character of Israel, ancient Israel, in Exodus 34 couldn't be more clear, could it? And we have two more to go. God is forgiving. It was surely comforting that God forgives iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Those three things, quote unquote. Boy, they needed 
forgiveness, didn't they? And guess who also does? The world does today. People do today. We do today. We need forgiveness for iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Things that this culture will pick on preachers for saying, will pick on Christians for even believing in. Because according to their wise philosophy, there's no such thing as iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Sad state of affairs. But yes, there is objective truth, and there is objective standard, and it comes from the character of God. God never calls us to do something or believe something or think something that is outside of his character. Those things would be wrong. And then finally, we have the word just. God forgives, but he does not leave the guilty unpunished. God does not punish people for the sins they did not commit. See Ezekiel 18. One of the sad consequences of a father's sin is that the child might choose to follow the father's example and engage in the same sinful practice. We've seen this as children willingly take up the drug abuse or immorality they saw in their parents. When the sin is repeated by the next generation, God's punishment is also repeated. So there's a good commentary on that verse 7, isn't it? So anyway, I have to skip this big box on page 137, which is talking more about uh, the glory language of Yahweh. But they ask us the question, which aspects of God's character have you learned to appreciate more as you've grown as a Christian? How have you experienced God as he describes himself in these verses? Compassionate, forgiving, just, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in covenant love, and abounding in the truth. Is that how you've experienced God? Boy, I hope so. I hope that this is what we want to experience of God in our lives. Because remember our point is how to discern the voice of God. Blackaby writes, for us to recognize God's voice when he speaks, we must know what his character is like. Oh, we must know it. We must understand it. We must get a grip on it. We've got to be familiar with it. It shouldn't be some weird thing that we've never thought about. When God speaks, he does so out of a heart of compassion, grace, and faithful love. Is that what the churches reflect? Is that what Christians reflect in their lives? Is that the persons with whom we have to deal when we are in worship at church? Heart of compassion, grace, and faithful love. This is not mushy cultural stuff that we get from Hollywood or Madison Avenue or D.C. or Nashville. Nope. This is coming from the heart of the Creator. Our, his desire is for us to know Him and walk obediently with Him, obediently with Him, so that we may experience His blessing. We should never fear a word from God. His words will always reflect His character. Well, I'm going to read the last part. I'm running out of time, but there's a lot more good stuff in here. Verse 8, Moses immediately knelt low on the ground and worshipped. Then he said, My Lord, if I have indeed found favor with you, my Lord, please go with us, even though this is a stiff-necked people. Forgive our iniquity and our sin, and accept us as your own possession. 
So Moses' response to God's proclamation, this amazing proclamation, his response is worship. Moses experienced the profound encounter with God. His immediate response was to bow down and worship. So God is extremely gracious to him and Moses knows it. And he understands that the Israelites were extremely blessed to have a loving and gracious God who was willing to enter a covenant with him and provide for all their needs and take them into the promised land. Moses asked God to go with them into Canaan as God said he wouldn't. But Moses appealed for God's presence and by responding to God's word, Moses restored the people's relationship with God. So, I'm going to conclude with these thoughts. Every word from God is an opportunity to learn something about him and an invitation to experience God in a fresh way. When God reveals to you that he is a forgiving God, you have an opportunity to experience his forgiveness. When God discloses that he is powerful, you have an opportunity to experience that power in your life. God will always speak words to you that perfectly match your current situation and need God's word to us is never accidental or coincidental. True encounters with God are not self-centered. They are God-centered. How about that? True encounters with God are centered on God. That's the definition of worship. They're focused on God, God's character, and his eternal divine being is the focus of worship. Not us. It's not entertainment. None of that. So, God's words elevate his nature and they reveal a people's sin. A genuine word from God is a humbling experience. Humbling. How many Christians are humble? I think there's there should be an inverse proportion. Inverse, I'm sorry, an inverse relationship between, between sanctification and humility. What do you think? Maybe not. I don't see it. But a word from God should make you think more highly of God and more humbly of yourself. God's word will point to anything that harms your relationship with him so you can repent of your sin and be restored to a loving relationship with God. When you hear and obey God, you are able to enjoy his powerful presence in your life. So once again, our main point, God never calls us to do something outside of his character, and that is how we might discern the voice of God. Well, this was a long podcast, but once again, part four, written by the notable Richard Blackaby in our Lifeway curriculum by God's grace right now. Anyhow, hope it's been a blessing to you. Lord willing, I'll see you in church real soon at zero. Thank you for listening. Rolling Roads Baptist Church is located at 2800 Van Story Street in Greensboro, North Carolina, near Four Seasons Town Center and Smith High School. You're invited to join with us this Sunday morning at 11 a.m. as we are growing towards Christ. Find us on Facebook and at rollingroads.org.